0: So yes, I think the US is an empire in decline, but I'm not I'm not one of those observers who say, Yeah, that's great. We'll have a Chinese empire. That will be wonderful. No, I don't think so. You're listening to the Corbett Report.
1: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in October of 2023 with a very special conversation with a guest that I hope will be familiar to my audience. But if not, well, then you're in for a treat. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Daniele Ganser, who you will hopefully know as an historian and energy and peace researcher, the head of the Swiss Institute for Peace and Energy Research, but also perhaps equally notably as the author of some important works, including NATO's Secret Armies, uh, Operation Gladio and Terrorism in Western Europe, and most recently, USA, The Ruthless Empire, two books which I will commend to your attention today. The links to these books will obviously be in the show notes for this conversation, and well, we'll get into some of the details, but first let's welcome him on the program. Daniele Gonser, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Hello, James. Thanks a lot for inviting me. All right. Uh, well, I suppose since this is your first time on the program, um, we'll we'll get into a little bit about yourself and what motivates you. But let's do so by recourse to your latest book, USA, The Ruthless Empire, which um, I definitely do commend to people's attention and we'll get into the specifics of it. But I guess instead of me trying to summarize it for you, why don't you summarize it for the audience? What is the the overall thesis of this book and what were you hoping to accomplish by writing it?
0: Um, yeah, I wrote this book uh, because I think the U.S. has uh, a lot of influence on international politics and everybody who's interested in, in international politics must look at the U.S. It's a country you cannot neglect, really. It's still the most powerful country, obviously has an influence on uh the war in Ukraine, it has an influence on the situation of Israel, it has an influence on, on Libya, on Iraq, on Afghanistan, on Chile, on Vietnam, on so many other countries. And I wrote this book for, for beginners, really. It's not, it's not for, you don't need any pre-knowledge to, to read the book. And I, I also write that the US is run by an oligarchy, that is my uh, conviction, and I, uh, I get the data to, to, to nail it down. Uh, because I, I say it's 330 million people who live in the U.S. and and they're being lied to about all these wars that the U.S. is involved to through corporate media, but um, the the small group which is really running uh, uh, the U.S. they they make a lot of money, and the average the average man on the street in 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 Florida or in in, in California doesn't know these things. Yeah, I, I say in the book that the U.S. is the country which has bombed most countries since 1945. So I call it the ruthless empire. That's that's the title, U.S. the ruthless empire.
1: But I really I really stress that it
0: shouldn't be, com, you know, confused U.S. population on the one hand and then the U.S. government on the other hand.
1: Right. It, I guess it is important to define our terms if we're going to be talking about an empire and even that term. Certainly not. I would imagine in the in my general audience, but in out there in the world, the idea that the U.S. is an empire is still to some a contentious uh, idea. And uh, of course, again, this will not be news to people in the corporate report audience generally. But I did very much appreciate. You, you say this is a book for beginners, and it certainly does cover a lot of information that people in the alternative media space may have heard before, but with a lot a lot of detail that I think will be appreciated by some people. One that I appreciated was this quote, which I'd never seen before, um, which is apparently from uh, a House of Representatives document. Um, "'Most people in this country, even the educated ones, know very little or nothing at all about our overseas possessions,' said a U.S. report from World War II. In fact, most do not even know that we have such overseas possessions. They believe that only foreigners like the British have an empire.'" Therefore, Americans are sometimes surprised to hear that we, too, have an empire, which is a pretty startling admission from a U.S. government report. I'd never seen that before, so I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. And it's, I think, a little handy nugget to keep in people's information arsenal to wield against those people who say the U.S. isn't an empire. (laughs) But as I say, I think I imagine most of the people listening to this conversation right now are on board with that idea. But let's talk about that that empire, what it really means and how it operates. As you say, it's an oligarchy and you do have an entire chapter with a lot of information devoted to that. But let's break down how that oligarchy functions and what this empire actually does.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right with that quote. So it's a book not only for beginners, but maybe also of interest to those who have already, you know, uh, read into the topic. I hope to sort of reach both groups. And um, how does this empire work? I mean, you know, in in history studies, I'm, I have a PhD in history and I'm a Swiss historian. We look, for instance, at the 19th century and we say, okay, the British Empire controlled India or the British Empire controlled parts of Africa. Um, we have the French Empire; they controlled, uh, for instance, South uh, East Asia. W- what later you know was Andorchine. We have the Spanish empire, they controlled parts uh, of South America. We have the Portuguese empire, which they control parts of what is today Brazil. So we're basically used in Europe to, to, to speak about empires. It's just one country which has a lot of influence on the other country. And um, in the West, it's, it's also, you know, within the traditional uh, way of speaking that the British obviously were an empire, or the French had an empire, or the Roman Empire, um, two thousand years ago. So in the in the American uh, writing system, they usually say yes, empires existed. There was basically from Europe uh, colonizing the rest of the world, and uh, colonialism and imperialism are evil, and and that, thanks God, is all over. That's that's the way it's often said today. And I contradict and I say the U.S. is now the empire. It's just much smarter, you know, um, the way that, for instance, the U.S. empire has influence over Germany is they are 38,000 U.S. troops in Germany. um, And the U.S. has a lot of influence on the German media scene. But it's not, you know, officially Germany is not officially German. A a, a colony of the US or Japan, there's a lot of US uh, soldiers in in, in stationed in Japan. And obviously, Japan has, you know, a degree of of, of freedom to do what it wants. But it cannot, you know, tell the US soldiers uh, to leave tomorrow. It's that's not possible. So. The U.S. empire is maybe what we can call a, 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 an empire that you can't really see so quickly. It, it was much easier to see the Roman Empire or the, the British Empire or the French Empire or the Spanish Empire. But nonetheless, it is an empire because no, no country has so many soldiers overseas, more than 200,000 uh, stationed in, as we said, uh, in, in Germany, in Japan, in South Korea, in Cuba. Guantanamo is a very well-known uh, military base of the U.S. Um, stationed also in Italy, and you know it's it's interesting to see that these military outposts are are, are are regarded as, oh yeah, gee, we have we have these military outposts in Japan, but you know we're not an empire. But if if Japan had military bases uh, in in Florida or or in in Idaho or. In Maine, wherever any of the states of the US, that 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 be that be that be critically recognized. So, really, it's a question of perspective.
1: One of the things that I appreciate about this book, and one of the reasons why I think it would make a nice addition to most people's bookshelves, even people who who know some of the the broader details about what's discussed here, is that I think it does a great service in connecting two communities that are often disconnected, and that is the sort of the peace movement more generally and the conspiracy realist movement. And those, uh, there has been a wedge that is often driven between that. Um, and I know there are a lot of people in the peace movement generally who don't want to be seen as one of those crazies who believe weird things about 9-11, etc. And I appreciate that this book does not shy away at all from asking the the important questions and pointing out uh, false flag events, conspiracies that have happened. Um, talking in, in length and in detail about WTC Seven and Dr. Leroy Holsey's study, etc. Um, again, I think that's it's valuable that those two communities are brought together because it seems to me that if there is to be a genuine, real resistance to this empire and the way that it functions, we we have to be aware of one of the most basic tactics and techniques that it uses, the, the false flag events and other types of um, ginned-up atrocities, etc., that are used to perpetuate the war cycle which feeds the empire itself. Can you speak to that that connecting of those two communities?
0: Yeah, uh, James, I'm very happy that you actually see uh, that I try to, to, to connect these two groups, because, you know, when Bush attacked Iraq in 2003... President Bush um, and overthrew Saddam Hussein in Iraq, that was obviously an illegal attack and there were protests all over the world. I was I was myself with my wife uh, protesting in Bern in Switzerland, which is the capital of Switzerland, against the attack on, on Iraq. Um, we were protesting against Bush and against Blair and many many from the peace movement were there. Okay, so protesting against the attack on Iraq was something which happened in New York. Pro, uh, there were peace movements there. there. It was in Los Angeles. It was in Rome. It was in Paris. It was in London, and um, yeah, um, um, that was just a flagrant violation of international law. Obviously, Bush and Blair didn't care <laughs> whether we were protesting or not. They they bombed the country nonetheless but i would say that that was a, a basically traditional uh, position of the peace movement that you don't bomb other countries like iraq and the peace movement obviously was also protesting against the bombing of, of vietnam you know bombing children with napalm and with agent orange and you know uh, killing all um all all, all, all all these women and elderly people i mean people were outraged uh, at that time you know and rightly so till today so uh, I was not I was not alive in the 60 was I was born in 72, but uh, I, I would have joined definitely the protesters uh, who said we don't we don't want these. We don't want to drop napalm uh, on, on that foreign country, which has has done no harm to us. So yes, I take the Iraq war. I take the Vietnam War. I take uh, I describe the peace protests that happened there and I, I, I fully back these people. But um, I then go one step further, as you rightly say. I go into Pearl Harbor, for instance. That's the entry of the US into the Second World War. And there, there I say, um, we really have to distinguish between what the president knew, Roosevelt, and what the population knew and what the soldiers in Pearl Harbor knew. And then I explain that according to the way I see the data, President Roosevelt really knew that the Japanese were attacking. The U.S. population didn't know it. And the soldiers uh, stationed on on Pearl Harbor didn't know it. So what I say, uh, and there's a whole chapter on on Pearl Harbor in that book, I say it was a Lee Hop operation, let it happen on purpose. And And I have some data to back it up. I mean, I say... Roosevelt wanted to go into the war. He wanted to fight Japan and he w- wanted to find ger- fight Germany in the Second World War. We're talking about 1941. Um, but, you know, the country, uh, there were a lot of people who didn't want to go to war in the U.S. There was a long, a very strong isolationist movement. There was a long, a strong peace movement. They didn't want to go to war. And to drag them into the war, um, the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, said, you know, we, you know, we can basically get... Get us into a confrontation with Japan. First thing we have to do is just basically cut off the oil supply uh, to Japan because they need the oil uh, dearly and we have it in the US. And so that was done. Roosevelt did that. He cut off the oil supply. And the ONI then further suggested that we should, you know, the Pacific fleet, the US Pacific fleet, which was uh, based in California, we should move it to Hawaii a bit closer. A bit closer to Japan. It's like, you know, you put the meat in front of the lion's cage. So when he comes out, it's, it's it's closer. And they did that. And Admiral Richardson, who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, I explained it in the book in further detail. He said, that's that's insanity. We we should have the Pacific Fleet uh, home base in California, not in Hawaii, because the soldiers want to go for a weekend and see their girlfriend. And if we have supplies, we, we it's much easier to have the, the home base in in California and that was all true but Roosevelt he just fired Richardson and he was the admiral in charge of the Pacific fleet and he put in uh, husband Kimmel and Kimmel was then stationed in Hawaii you know new base of the Pacific fleet and when the when the when the Japanese attacked on on 7 December 1941 he was left out of the loop he was not informed Uh, he was not informed that Roosevelt and the whole cabinet in Washington had intercepted the communication uh, of the Japanese. That was uh, um, the magic data. And we now know as a fact that Roosevelt let this happen. And I have have a quote from one of the Office of Naval Intelligence officer who says, because he was asked, you know, I mean, you sacrificed 2,400 US soldiers. uh, And then he said it was a it was a cheap price to pay um, to then have consent within the United States to go to war against Japan and, and Germany. So when you say on, on one level, you're with the peace movement, you know, against uh, the Vietnam War, against uh, the Iraq War. And on the second level, you go deeper uh, and and, uh, and you look at conspiracies because that clearly was a conspiracy. And it was conspiracy of President Roosevelt against the American population. And uh, I think it's important for the peace movement to look at that data and, and and not just say, well, you know, that's nonsense. So I take in Pearl Harbor. That's one Pearl Harbor, 1941. I have the Kennedy assassination where I basically said the CIA killed Kennedy. I mean, we can talk about it in further detail, uh, but I'm not going like, oh, yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald did it. Uh, so i'm saying yeah that was another conspiracy and i'm saying uh, 9-11 i mean these are the big three Pearl harbour jfk and, and 9-11 uh, on 9-11 i say world trade tends to seven world trade sent to seven was blown up it was controlled demolition and obviously you're right uh this these are topics that um that divide the peace movement uh, or because some people say oh, i don't i don't want to hear about it I, I, this is crazy stuff and but, you know, as a historian, I'm I'm just uh, trying to do my job as good as I can and as, as independent as I can. And when I saw World Trade Center 7 coming down, it was not hit by a plane. And the BBC reported about that collapse at five o'clock, but it only collapsed at 5.20. So they, they reported 20 minutes too early, which is totally unacceptable. And the building went against its own footprint. I mean, I don't have to explain it to you. I know you're you, you're very knowledgeable about all that. But... It's true. I I I tried to write I, I tried to write this book for both the peace activists who 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 are just generally opposed to war and torture and lies. But I also wrote the book for those who who try to to look behind the curtain and who are not who are not afraid if somebody calls them, Oh, if you look behind that curtain you're a conspiracy theorist. You know, they go like I don't care whatever you call me. I want to know what's going on. And they just look behind the curtain. So I, I wrote it for both groups. It, it strikes me that that is a type
1: of bravery and integrity that should not be so unusual in academia or in the historian in the field of history. But unfortunately, it seems that it is. So I very much appreciate that. And for people who don't understand about yourself, maybe haven't read NATO's secret armies or don't understand the significance of a work like this... Um, I, I would, uh, I, I don't want to ask you to blow your own horn, so to speak, but it is important that people understand that you w- did some very pioneering research at, uh, into the NATO secret army, the stay behind slash Operation Gladio um, uh, armies that were being puppeteered by NATO in, in Europe in the 19, uh, post-World War II era, that was somewhat acknowledged in the early 90s, and there was a slow process of information coming out, but still, there had been remarkably little research when you decided to make that the topic of your PhD dissertation. What an interesting topic, and I would assume that that is where you, st- you got your, your baptism, as it were, in being called a conspiracy theorist and being told not to look into certain areas. Um, tell us about the experience of writing NATO's Secret Armies.
0: Um yeah that's true. I mean I wrote this book NATO Secret Army and the subtitle is uh, Operation Gladio Terrorism in Western Europe and that's my PhD so I put you know 4 years into this um of my life and I I really spent a lot of time working on this and what I what I can say is oops sorry this isn't very solid put this here maybe that one um what I can say is that people don't know what Operation Gladio is. I mean, ask your average friend and, and ask him, how about Operation Gladio? What do you think about it? They go like Operation Gladio and they, they, they basically say they know the film Gladiator. <laughs> that, that, that. Mm-hmm. Then they go, oh yeah, that's a film which is really cool but it's like 2,000 years ago where, you know, the Gladio is the sh- is this this, this short uh, sword. That's a Gladio. And and that's also the reason why it was called Operation Gladio. But in the historical context, you um, uh the main person there is Giulio Andreotti, who was the Italian Prime Minister, and he blew the whistle in the year 1990. So that that that's just at the end of the, the Cold War. The Soviet Union collapsed in nineteen ninety-one. And in the year nineteen ninety, there was a bit of a transition period in Europe. You know, many things changed. Germany reunited, the Berlin fall had had fallen in eighty nine. So it was a it was a period where we had secrets from the Cold War coming to the surface. Very interesting. At the same time, you know Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and then we had Operation Desert Storm and all that. But uh, um, Giulio Andreotti was was an insider in Italy. He was prime minister and he he really knew Italian politics inside out. And he said, "There's a secret army in this country." And people were like, "Really? Are, are you kidding? Because obviously there cannot be a secret army in a country." Um, uh, if you have an army in a country, uh, the, the the leader of the army, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the generals, they have to be known. The defense minister, he has, you know, he has to be known. Uh, the size of the army has to be known. The budget of the army has to be known. And Julian Androtti said, well, you know, this army is secret. We didn't, you know, parliament didn't know about it. And judges didn't know about it. And journalists didn't know about it. Professors at universities didn't know about it. And people on the streets certainly didn't know about it. So there was a huge scandal. It was called the, the scandal of Gladio. And uh, then the um, Belgian defense minister at the time was in Italy and he was, you know, talking to Andreotti and he was going, well, but that, you know, that's typically Italy. You know, you have all these secret structures. I'm, I'm so glad we don't have that. And then Andreotti said to the Belgian defense minister, well, you have a secret army in Belgium as well. And, you know, he literally his jaw dropped and he was going like, What? I'm the defense minister. I mean, I should know about it. So he flew back from Italy to Belgium. His name was Guy Coem. And um, he talked to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and said, uh, I have something to ask you. Do we have a secret army here? And then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, yes. And then the defense minister, Belgian defense minister said, why am i not you know in the loop what why 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 am i not being informed and the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff said well you know defense ministers come and go we're here professional military people and uh, we're here to stay and and that was a huge scandal because at that point you could really say defense ministers in some countries were not and invo- not informed in switzerland which is not a nato country we had a uh, cost of who was the defense minister. Now, Filigo was not aware that there was a secret army in Switzerland uh, with the code name P-26. And when the scandal broke, he said, I didn't know about it. So it was not only that people on the street or journalists or people in parliament didn't know about it. Some people on the level of defense minister had no clue. And when I looked at the data in more detail, I found out that these secret armies had been set up by the CIA and the MI6. And William Colby at the time, in the 70s, um, admitted that these secret armies existed and then it was forgotten again. And uh, Giulia Andreotti then confirmed, yes, these secret armies existed and the overall name is called Stay Behind. And the idea is if there is a, a Soviet invasion in Western Europe, then these secret armies would become active in the sense of a guerrilla network. They would use explosives uh, and 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 guns and um, uh, just you know small guerrilla tactics to blow up uh, supply lines of of enemies who would then um, occupy Western Europe. So NATO had a meeting in nineteen ninety. Uh, Because it was very embarrassing for NATO, because Andreotti said NATO is coordinating this. And uh, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe then said, "Okay, well, let's have a meeting. And uh, uh, Manfred Wernold was the secretary general of NATO at the time. And he said, this is this is explosive. And uh, let's see that the media doesn't doesn't, you know, dig deep. So on one day they said, yes, we had a secret army. And on the second day they had another spokesman coming forward in Brussels in NATO headquarters who said what we
1: said yesterday is wrong and furthermore we cannot comment on gladio. <laughs> it was really and funny. and I love the little nugget that you have in your book that they even denied the existence of that previous spokesperson who admitted NATO's role in gladio to you, right?
0: Yeah, it was a total I mean yeah, they messed it up. I mean it was, <laughs> of those things where you say that's the way you shouldn't do it. (laughs) Uh, But uh, then they had a closed meeting of just NATO ambassadors. We're still in the year 1990. uh, So that is now uh, 33, exactly 33 years ago. So many people don't know it. It's just history. And these NATO ambassadors came together. And most of these NATO ambassadors didn't even know. Okay, so even on the level of NATO ambassadors, it was it was top secret. And the problem that we have now with uh, Operation Gladio is, it is known that it existed. We have you know, confirmation from former generals who were in the networks. It is known that it existed not only in Italy, but also in Greece, in Turkey, in Germany. In Germany, we had for- former Nazis uh, who were in the network, so that's also confirmed. We had these secret armies in neutral countries like Sweden and and Austria and Switzerland. We shouldn't be because it it was a NATO network. Why have them in neutral countries and why have former SS people in it in Germany? And why have you know? There's lots of questions coming to mind. Uh, it's it's really it's really quite the opposite of what you learn uh, when you study history or international politics. If you if you if you study politics, let's say you're 20 years old. Then you go like, OK, democracy, it works like that. You have the executive branch with the president and the defense minister and, and the foreign minister and the, the, the boss of the CIA and whatever. But you also have parliament, the House and the Senate, and they really they really control what what the executive is go- doing. I mean, they control that. That's that's how it's done. And if something is done against the law, then uh, you have the Supreme Court who will who, who will who will really say to, stick to the law. I mean, that's what you're being told when you're a student. And you know, you take notes and you say, oh, okay, the executive is controlled by the legislative branch and the judicative will intervene if there's a problem. And then Europe look at real life and you find out the leg- legislative block branch. So parliaments all over Europe had no idea. They just had no idea. The judicial branch, they never even touched upon the topic. And within the executive branch, you had the level of need to know that some were informed, others were not. So I wrote the book from that perspective and said, okay, this is clearly unacceptable. You, you, you cannot call yourself a democracy when you don't even know whether you have a secret army or not. I mean, we're not talking details. These are armed people. And uh, I got a lot of cris- criticism for that. Um, because some people in the secret army said, how can you sort of criticize us because we prepared for a Soviet invasion and that was a sensible thing to do. And I say, I understand that. Okay, I understand that. But still, you should adhere to the rules of a democracy. And um, so the second problem that we have with the secret armies that I think is that they were linked to acts of terrorism. Now that is very, very difficult to prove. I have I have to say that, I mean, on the one hand, we know that there were acts of terrorism in Italy. Bologna is the most famous one, but we also have Piazza Fontana with Bettiano. Uh, that was all in the, Bologna was 1980, but 69 was Bologna and it was Piazza Fontana in Milano. Uh, so with a lot of acts of terrorism where people in public places were blown to pieces, okay? So that was clearly an attack on the civilian population in Italy. And we also have attacks in Belgium, the Brabant massacres in the 80s, where people who went to supermarkets were just gone down and killed. And they even waited for the police to arrive and finish them off right there. So these were brutal killers. And then in Greece and in Turkey, we had coup de And then the question arose if we had these secret armies in Western Europe. And that's a fact. Were they involved in the killings in Belgium, in the terrorist attacks in France, and in the terrorist attacks in Italy? And furthermore, were they involved in the military coup d'etat in Greece in 67 and in Turkey in 1980? And James, that, as you feel, takes the question to a to a highly sensitive level, because here we're talking about, about huge crimes, okay? And still today, I cannot like a hundred percent say, you know, the CIA over was involved in the coup d'etat in Greece or was 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 blowing up people in Italy or was blowing up people in Belgium or the MI6 was doing this because the CIA and the MI6 would always say. Yeah, yeah, it's true what the Swiss, you know, historian found out or it's true what Andriotti said there. We had these secret armies, but they were just there set up to fight in case of a Soviet invasion. They were never meant to, you know, to attack the population. That's just one or two crazy people we had no control of who then linked up with other crazy people. And these crazy people carried it out. And that was nothing we wanted. So, you know, it's the plausible denial uh, thing that they do, but I'm not convinced because what I see is in Italy, for instance, they linked up with Ordine Nuovo. That's a right wing terrorist organization and Ordine Nuovo carried out the terrorist attacks. That's for sure. That's proven, you know, they had investigations after investigations in Italy. And I speak Italian so I can read this data. And that's what we call first level. On the lowest level, right-wing terrorists carried out these attacks in Italy. Then there is a second level, which um, we call the Italian military secret service, Cifar, and others. They were involved. So these, the American secret service linked up with, with the Italian secret service, and they covered this. Okay, especially for the attack in Peteano in 1972. We know that one guy who was, uh, who was responsible, Vincenzo Vinciguerra, he was in Ordine Nuovo and he was protected by the Secret Service. And when he was arrested, he said there is a secret army in Italy called Gladio and nobody believed him. But he was one of the guys who had carried out the terrorist attacks. And he made this comment. He said the state cannot find out the truth on this because the state is responsible for what happened. And when he says the state, he means that deep state, that secret branch of the executive that is hardly controlled. So there is data that uh, Operation Gladio was linked to terrorism and to coup d'etats. And and that's in that book. And it's obviously delicate and. Many people don't want to talk about it.
1: Well, not not just delicate, explosive, literally explosive. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, uh, again, I hope people can at least appreciate the the efforts and the lengths that you went to in the production of this book, including getting and then translating many of the documents here. Uh, you've done really important research here. So I hope people have this book in, on their bookshelf. Um, can but I, I, can I, I explain how it happened? That yes, please do. Book? Yeah. I was working on
0: Cuba, on the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and uh, I looked at different, you know, analyses of it and everything. And then I wrote a a small book on the Cuban Missile Crisis and and the debates in the UN Security Council. I went through all the data in the Security Council, and I said, that's really interesting. And I sent my analysis to Noam Chomsky, who was then professor at MIT. And who had written really good analysis on on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I thought, and and on the Bay of Pigs invasion. And I sent it to William Bloom, who wrote that book, Killing Hope. So uh, that was in the 90s. And that was actually the first time I was writing emails at Basel University, where I was just a small little student. I wrote my emails to Noam, and I wrote my emails to Bill. And they were so kind to respond. OK, I was just a small little Swiss student. And then they said, yeah, Dan, you did some good work there in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and thanks for sharing it. And um, then I wrote, I'm now working, I'm now looking for a PhD topic. And then Noam and Bill both said, you know, we have a problem over here. Most of us don't speak Italian, and we don't speak French, and we don't speak German. Now, if you want to research Operation Gladio, That'd be good because you speak all these languages you are in Europe and it really is, it has to be, the the big problem is translating it all. Um, there is data, but the data is in many different languages. Um, you could research this as your PhD topic. So I wrote back, well, that's a great idea. I've never heard of operation gladio, but I speak in many languages and I could go ahead and then they helped me with contacts in Europe who then helped me with gathering the data so really the 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 hint came from from the US from the US peace movement i mean bill bloom is in the peace movement norm chomsky is in the peace movement and they they both don't speak italian yeah uh,
1: and have shown and, aversion uh, to <laughs> some of the conspiracy topics written about in usa ruthless empire as well i Chomsky does yeah. not like nine eleven truth, for example. So no, he didn't
0: like that. No, mm. but I met him then. I, I traveled to 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 Boston, and we met. And you know, I, I don't have the same perspective on Corona or nine eleven as he has. But I think he was he was doing excellent work on U.S. imperialism, and so did Bill Bloom. I, I mean, Bill Bloom. I still have his book, yeah, Killing Hope. Killing, Killing Hope. He, he's he's dead now, but he was such an excellent scholar. Um, saying, you know, that's not acceptable, we cannot just overthrow the government in Guatemala, in, of Arbenz in 54, or overthrow the government of Mossadegh in 53. And he, he really explained to me, I I, I then met him in Washington. Uh, and he had all this data and he was he was really a data guy. Uh, and he said, Oh, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you seen, seen that? And he said, he was generally part of the US peace movement. He said, I, I completely disagree with my government. Why do they do all these these illegal things? And, and you know, most people here who live with me in the same block, he was just living from modest means. He is not having a huge house and, and the swimming pool. He was, I don't know, on the 10th floor in some huge block. That's where we met. And he said, you know, people, my neighbors to the left and the right, they they watch television and believe what they're seeing, and it's just not the truth. But, you know, I I, I tell you the story, first, because I have not shared it very often, and, and second, because I want to pay tribute to the U.S. peace, mo- peace movement, which really helped me. I mean, I, I got the data from there or from people who worked at the National Security Archive NSA.
1: Well, I, I appreciate the work that you put into that book. Before we leave the Gladio topic, I, I should ask you if you have been following the uh, the trial that is set to take place, is taking place in Italy right now. Um, uh, earlier this year, Marco Toffoloni, a 66-year-old now, he was 17 at the time of the Piazza della Loggia bombing in 1974, and he has just recently been charged um, as with taking part in that bombing. And According to some of the coverage, this may lead to some more specific links between Ordine Nuovo and the NATO secret armies. So have you been following that at all? Do you have any information? Yeah,
0: about that? I do follow it, uh, not on a daily basis, but I get I get the data, you know, uh, as summaries from people who help me. But um, it's in Italy, they call it Terzo Livello, which means the third level. And the third level is actually the link from, I mean, as I said, the US empire has military bases in Italy. That's, you know, public knowledge. I mean, everybody knows it. And from these um, US military bases in Italy, there were oral commands to right-wing terrorists in Italy. That's very hard to prove. I mean, how do you prove that as a historian? That some senior U.S. officer in one of the military bases in northern Italy, in Verona or in other places, talks to a right wing extremist. I mean, they, they wouldn't put it down <laughs> in unless unless and,
1: they die in a car crash in Susurlook or something like that. There's it's hard yeah, to find evidence, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that. That was the one thing which 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 helped, obviously, a lot to dig deep in Turkey. But otherwise, you don't get them. In the same spot, it has to be this freeze moment, <laughs> uh, as as we had it in, in in Susurluk. But that was a rare case in Turkey where you get you got them all together. But the 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 uh, Piazza della Loggia bombing, nineteen seventy four, yeah, is 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 certainly one of these big terrorist attacks. And you know, it the, the difficult thing for Europeans, that's taken on a very general level, to understand is that the U S had a strategic interest to carry out terrorist attacks in Italy because your average student of history or your average mother sitting in a Italian cafe would say, are you crazy? Why would the U S kill people in Italy? And so these, these trials that are going on are important because they show the historical strategic context. And as I said before, um, Italy is a NATO country, but Italy also had a strong communist party. And if an Italian defense minister, you know, never happened. There was never an Italian defense minister. But if the strong communist party in Italy um, had reached positions in the executive branch of influence, like defense minister or interior minister, they would have betrayed the secrets of NATO to Moscow. Because the Italian Communist Party was obviously linked to the Communist Party in Moscow. You know, we can talk about how strongly and how, how independent they were, but there were links. That's undisputed. So NATO was fearing that there should never be a, a communist defense minister. So how do you weaken the Italian Communist Party? Well, one idea, very a cruel idea, but this is the strategic thinking behind it, is you carry out terrorist attacks in Italy. You use the extreme right, like Ordine Nuovo. And you blame it on the communists. That's what we call false flag terrorist attacks in the context of strategy of tension. Now, most people don't know what false flag operations are, And most people don't know what strategy of tension is. But false flag is actually simple to understand. It's just you shoot yourself in the foot and, and then say, my neighbor did it. I mean, that's a false flag. And everybody will think, well, you're not going to shoot yourself in the foot. Nobody would do that. So it has to be the neighbor because there's just two people in the room. It has to be him. Okay. That's false flag. Or when the CIA bombed Cuba in the Bay of Pigs, they painted on the planes that they used to pay, pay, uh, to bomb Cuba, RAF. No, F-A-R. Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias, which is Spanish and it's just the, the name of the Cuban Air Force. Tiny Air Force of Fidel Castro. That That's that's false flag you just you just pretend that 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 you're somebody else and strategy of tension is the other one you create tension and tension is not um, for the one who are dead people who are dead have no tension at all it's the tension in those who survive and who see what happens and you can create tension in Italy by killing people lots of people 10 20 50 or 3000 in the US on 9 11. It's just then you create tension among those who observe it. And you then introduce a scapegoat like the Italian communists did it or Al Qaeda in Afghanistan did it. And then on an emotional level, people are so confused at the moment of 9 11 or at the moment of, of Piazza Fontana or Bologna that they're unable to think. Because if you create a lot of emotional tension, a human being is not able to think. Then they just are bewilder. And historians then come in much later. We don't, I don't feel the, the well, not much. I don't feel that his the, the tension that people have felt at, during these terrorist attacks. And I, I can look at it calmly and go like, oh, gee, this happened. Oh, gee, that happened. Okay, so the right-wing terrorists were we're doing this. Oh, they blamed it on the left. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, and then they found out that the military secret was involved. Oh, interesting. Um then I find out the military secret was was cooperating directly with the CIA. Oh, interesting. So I go from primo livello, secondo livello to third level, terzo livello. So yes, I follow this, but it's a complicated story and uh, I'm glad your audience is, is ready to think about it, but but most people like 90% of world population is not ready to think about it.
1: We, we have a long way to go, but we have made progress, I would say, in recent years in introducing this terminology to the public. And I think more people are aware of the concept of false flag now, thanks to the that's efforts also, of researchers like yourself. Prefer- Thanks also to your work. I mean, it has to be said. I I do appreciate that. I appreciate you mentioning the corporate report in the book as well. I do appreciate that. Um, And as you say, I think, yes, this is is where all of the dots of our conversation start to connect. Because you raise the specter, for example, of the false flag in Cuba, which in Bay of Pigs and painting up uh, planes with uh, 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 Cuban Air Force uh, colors. But also, of course... The idea of a false flag in Cuba should probably raise the minds in corporate report listeners of Operation Northwoods, the plan um, signed off on by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, specifically Lyman Lemnitzer, to commit false flag attacks in the United States as well as in Cuba and blaming the Cuban government and et cetera, et cetera. And what happened to Lyman Lemnitzer? Oh, that's right. He was sacked, essentially, or shuffled sideways to become Supreme Allied Commander of Europe for NATO, in which he was obviously playing a part in the Gladio operations that were going on there. So it, what an interesting circle. And it brings us back to the the concept of the USA Ruthless Empire and its organs and tentacles all around the world. Um, but uh, and as I say, I, there's so much information in here, some of which will be new even to people who've been researching this for a long time. Some of it w- will be um, uh, review material. But I always want to take a look at the the other side of this. Yes, there's the documentation and the information that we can glean about the problem, but really the the fundamental question is what is the solution? And when it comes to the question of a ruthless empire, a world-bestriding empire that has been built up over the uh, the course of at least the last century, um, that is an overwhelming question. And I think there are two aspects to it. There's the macrocosmic and the microcosmic. So the macrocosmic... um, perspective on this would be the geopolitical perspective. Is there a a way to, say, dethrone the U.S. empire or to, to stop or derail its progress um, through world history? Or is this an inevitable progress? And then there will be, of course, the question of the microcosmic. What can individuals in the peace movement actually do about this? Let's start with the geopolitical context of it. What What is your analysis of the USA empire and where it's going from here and what, what could happen geopolitically to derail it?
0: Um, on the geopolitical level, the empires always come. Then they have a strong time and then they have a decline time and then they're gone. I mean, that's always like that. It's really like the waves on the ocean. If, if you're sitting at, at the, uh, if you're sitting on California beach and you see the waves, they come, they cr- go they come they go it's everything in life is like that I mean um, that these are you know deep spiritual wisdoms that nothing is there forever I mean you are not there forever I'm not there forever our time is is ticking away we don't know when we die and the same for 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 our all our listeners we'll all we'll all we're we'll all come and go like waves and the same is true for 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 flowers they bloom they blossom they die. The same is true if you have a dog, you know, you have a dog, is a small puppy, he grows bigger and then he dies. If you have a horse, same story. And if it's an empire, same story. Every empire comes and goes. So the Roman Empire is no longer here. And everybody knows that the French used to control large parts of Africa no longer. The French used to control um, Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia no longer. Uh, The Dutch had Indonesia, no longer the case. The Spanish had uh, most of South America, no longer the case. So it's, it's normal that empires come and go, like the British Empire. I mean, the British are a shadow of what they used to, of the influence they used to have. And now, so historically speaking, yes, the US Empire will go as well. The problem is, it's not necessarily speaking, Better if we have a Chinese empire or a Russian empire or a BRICS empire, you know, I'm empires as a historian. I just don't like empires. I wish we could have a world without empires. Whether well, that's strategically possible. I don't really know. But I obviously it's quite obvious that if you if you look at the world, you have one hundred and ninety three UN member states. So Switzerland is one, Japan is one, China is one, US is one, Mexico is one, Nigeria is one, and New Zealand is one of these 193 nations. I said before that these 193 nations are not of equal power and 31 nations are within NATO. They are NATO members. So now Finland has joined, so it's now 31, but it's it's basically north america and europe that's the nato countries and these 31 nation states i've 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 done the numbers they have um about 1 billion people who live there out of 8 billion 1 billion lives in nato countries now the problem is is that the news that we're reading cnn or fox news or washington post or new york times or German news or The Guardian or what have you. That is all within the NATO language communication universe. It's always saying, you know, there's no U.S. empire and there's no Operation Gladio. And 9-11 is, as George Bush told us. And these are all fairy tales. It's all fairy tales. Not true. Might give you a good feeling if you believe it, but it's not true. Nothing to do with facts. And then I always say, If you take these 31 NATO countries that still leaves you with 163 countries which are outside of NATO. And if you go to these countries, Switzerland is one of the 163, we're not a NATO country, but we're surrounded by NATO countries. Um, Then you see, okay, there's a different perspective. And if you go into the BRICS countries, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China. And uh, South Africa, these five BRICS countries, they have a population of more than three billion. So NATO countries, one billion, BRICS countries, three billion. Then you look at the data in the BRICS and you look at the debate. You look at the debate on 9-11 in China or in India or in Russia or in Brazil. It's a completely different debate. They say, yeah, you know, probably there was controlled demolition. Within the NATO countries, there is no controlled demolition. Why? Because there can be no controlled demolition. <laughs> and and in, in the BRICS country, you have much more open debate. Now, the ins- because you, you talk about, you know, how, how do empires come and go? The interesting point here is, and, and we your audience probably is well aware of that, because I think you have a very highly educated audience, is that the BRICS are now five. But in two months, in January 2024, next year, the BRICS will will become a bigger club. Iran will join. Saudi Arabia will join. Argentina will join. Egypt will join. The Emirates will join. Have I have I forgotten somebody? Ethiopia, I think. So it, they will go from five to ten or more. They double. So the BRICS get bigger. And that means an empire like the US empire has a, a bigger challenger. It's not China alone, it's China in the BRICS context. And there I see the petrodollar as the key question because the petrodollar obviously gave the US empire a huge advantage because they could just print their money. And that's always something very handy if you can print your money and as long as the 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 dollar was backed with gold until 71 it was a solid structure then it was backed by oil basically you know all oil was sold in dollars and now saudi arabia joins the brics in january 24 for me i mean you know i as a historian i can't really say what the future will bring because i couldn't predict corona uh, but when Saudi Arabia joins the BRICS group that will certainly weaken the petrodollar certainly and that furthermore will add to the decline of the US empire so yes I, I think the us is an empire in decline but i'm not i'm not one of those observers who say yeah that's great we'll have a chinese empire that will be wonderful no I-
1: no I, I very much appreciate that you make that point because yes, certainly the debate on 911 in China or Russia is much more open than it is in the United States, but the debate on Tiananmen Square or any other number of uh, I, I invite you to go to China and start criticizing the Chinese government. actually, I don't invite you to do that because you'll probably never be seen again. So yes, the idea that a Chinese Empire would be preferable to US Empire is I think the wrong emphasis to put especially for people who genuinely desire peace. And I think that brings it back to that level, the microcosmic level that I was identifying of individuals in the peace movement who genuinely do desire peace. Um, As we sit here in October of 2023, potentially facing another regional war that could engulf the entire world, who knows? Um, It is a it's a very unpopular position to genuinely Hold a thoroughgoing peace position at this point, unfortunately, but it's one that uh, I think needs to be defended, all the more vociferously, exactly because of that point, and not by rallying around another national flag. Oh, let's all just now China will be the saviors of the world. No, I think we need to reject that thinking altogether. The question is, how do we do this? And you identify three things in this book that you think are important things for the peace movement to pick up on and and to center. Uh, their activities around. Tell us about those three things that you identify.
0: Well, the first thing is that we should stop using violence to solve a conflict. That's that's just a very general thing. And there's a lot of people in in, in the peace movement in Israel right now who say, no, I don't agree. If our, if my government, if Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the prime minister of Israel, if he now flattens uh, the Gaza Strip and kills everybody there or displaces these people, that's gonna, not going to help. So that's people in Israel, in the peace movement, who very clearly say, let's not solve our conflicts with violence. And there are people in the US in the peace movement who say, let's not bomb Iraq. That's not a good idea. Let's not bomb Libya. Um, and there there's people in Russia in the peace movement who say, let's not invade Ukraine. It's not a good idea. And, and, and I agree with all these. OK, but they are in different countries. But they all agree that as human beings, we have conflicts, which is normal. I mean. Everybody has a conflict with with, with, if, if you have kids, you can have conflict with your kids. If you if you have a wife or a husband, you have conflict with him. That's all Norman. I mean, conflicts are all right. I'm not I'm not the guy who's saying we shouldn't have any conflicts. I mean, conflicts are part of our experience as human beings. But the tipping point really is if we if we solve our conflicts with violence and not or not, and if if the wife just poisons the husband because they have a conflict, I'm saying that's wrong. Or if the husband just shoots the wife, I'm saying that's wrong. The conflict must be solved without violence. And that's, that's the position for the peace movement on all issues. It's not just on the private issue. It's also on the issue of Israel and Palestine, on the issue of, of Ukraine and Russia, of the issue of, um, how do we, how do, how does the U.S. and China, how they, can they coexist with China gaining more influence? Do you need to, you know, sort of go into a conflict in, in Taiwan and make the whole thing blow up? No, you don't. We we can really uh, coexist um, if we learn to solve our conflicts without violence. I know it sounds like a far-fetched thought, you know, something, oh, it's not going to work. And the Swiss historian is just having no clue. I mean, we're, we're always going to kill each other. And how stupid do you have to be to say we, we, we but really in it, it's, it's like, you know, we, when, when, when there was slavery to say, oh no, slavery will be there forever. And how can anybody think of that, that this will at one point be looked at as not a good idea. And and I hope that that we reach this point with conflicts. That we still say we will, we will always have different ideas and different perspectives and different religions and we'll eat different food and listen to different music. I mean, you probably listen to different music than I do. We actually don't know what music we listen to, but we both wouldn't shoot each other because we listen to different music. Or I mean, it's just a crazy idea the the, the shooting. So I, I I really say the most people on the planet don't kill each other. Most like 95% make it 98%. It's only 2% who are involved in intensive killing, maybe even less. Um, but this group needs to be convinced by the much larger group that we shouldn't do it. And dare I say the prohibition of violence as it was put down in UN Charter in 1945. It basically says all nations shall refrain from the use of force in their international relations, even from the threat. They shouldn't threat other countries. So that was put down in 45 and then forgotten. I mean, that that's, but it's a jewel and we should really dig it up again and say, let's take just this, this, this international law, which is there and implement it and not, you know, send tanks across the border. That's the first thing. The second thing on a, on a, on a private level is, is really that I say we should, overcome nationalism, because, you know, the Germans and the French killed each other in the First World War. And they really had no clue who the other guy on the other side of the trench was. The US soldiers based in Iraq, who killed Iraqis, they they had no personal problem with the people that they were killing. They were just sent there and then they killed the others because they heard this story of weapons of mass destruction, which was lies or that Saddam had anything to do with 9-11, which was lies. So these 20 or 25 year old soldiers are, are being fooled. They're being fooled. They're being, you know, sacrificed. And when they come back, uh, they're not being taken care of. So uh, I also speak in the name of the soldiers who who were fooled and who who, who come back with one limb and. Uh, Traumatized. And and I tell them, okay, the nationalism has gotten on the flag. You know, if you if you run with the flag and say, My government, my government has the total wisdom and this is the flag, you can carry any flag. It can be the Israeli flag, can be the Ukrainian flag, can be the US flag, can be whatever flag. You're being fooled. So I say, let's overcome nationalism. It's very difficult. You know, some people say, God, oh, what an idea to overcome nationalism. Will never work. I say, yes, the peace movement is already already overcome nationalism. We feel that within the peace movement, we're strongly connected, much more strongly connected to each other than to our nation state. Like I can really criticize the Swiss government and say, it's wrong that we take sides in the conflict, Ukraine and Russia, We we should be neutral. So I criticize my own government and the people in the peace movement in the US do the same and people in the peace movement in Israel do the same. So they are overcoming nationalism. And let's let's understand that we are actually a human family, that everybody is a brother and a sister, everybody. And then people go like, like everybody, like, OK, my friends. Yes, but not the Taliban. Right. I would say, yes, also the Taliban. They like what the Taliban are my friends. I'm not saying they're your friends, but they are the human family. Then they say, but the, the people in the Israeli defense forces who are now bombing the Gaza Strip, they're not part of the human family. I say, yes, they are. And the the Hamas are they part of the human? Yes, they are as well. So everybody is yes. And what we the concept that I have in mind is that we should treat them with respect. It doesn't mean that we should go on a holiday with them, but we should just not kill them. That's that's the basic thing. Don't kill each other in the family. And this is this is an idea that that, that, that tribal people understand very well. They say okay within the family that we don't kill each other, but they say we can't kill the other ones from the other tribe. Okay, that's but that's tribal thinking. And we've, we've sort of evolved from tribal thinking into nationalism, which is another form of tribal thinking. And I say, let's move one step further and say the whole world is one family and let's not kill each other. So I I speak about this concept of human family in my talks. I always say that we're all part of human family. And then the third thing that I recommend uh, is that uh, we do, um, we do meditation, really, I mean, that we, that we train ourselves to become more mindfulness training. This this is, is a training which is, which is popular in the peace movement, you know, a lot, a lot of us do yoga or reflect on, on their own pains that they have from their could be their childhood or divorce or financial bankruptcy or whatever they've they've lived through. You know, most of us have, have a few years on their shoulders, so we have a few years to reflect upon. And if we watch inside and look at all these wounds that we have and we do some healing on our own wounds, then we cannot be so easily manipulated by war propaganda because people who... Who, who are just not reflecting their own trauma, they are being pushed around very, very easily. So I say this uh, this mindfulness training um, basically says that you observe your own thoughts, that you observe your, your own body, you observe your own uh, emotions, but you are aware that you're not your body or thoughts or emotions, but you're the consciousness which, which keeps everything uh, working. And on that level, you cannot be confused so easy to television or politicians who come you know and say kill this guy or kill that guy you go like hmm that's an interesting thought how did it come into my brain oh i watched this television show but then you watch your thoughts and you go like oh i have this thought how did that end up in my brain and you really train your own awareness observe your thoughts and you just don't believe everything you think you just you know reject some thoughts when you say they're outdated and 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 let in new thoughts and i i just i mean james i just have this belief that as a human family we have extreme potential i mean it's not that the the 2023 edition is not as the best we can do right with much more potential much more Every, on, on an individual level, on a, on a family level, on a friends level, on a collective level. But we really we really have to shift up one gear. I mean, the way we do it now is um, we're stuck in nationalism, pick a side, kill the other group. Uh, we're stuck in front of TV, believing lies, the governments here and there. I'm not saying one government is... T- telling lies all governments across the world are telling lies uh, sometimes more sometimes less but uh, it's scary when they say we should kill people here or kill people there and then people from germany go with the bundeswehr to afghanistan and kill people in afghanistan i mean it, it has happened It's, it's not just a, some it's things i observe so i think we can shift up one more gear and then the peace movement can can become stronger and and I'm, I'm I'm this positive uh, thinking person. I, I think uh, we have the potential. Obviously, can I don't know where we are in the year 2030 or in the year 2040. But all those who have kids and also those who don't have kids or are generally interested in peace. They they think long term. It's about the year 2050. It's not about the year 2024. And we think about the year 2050, that's, you know, 21st century for many who have kids today, that's that's a period where their kids will be alive. And uh, so we have vested interests in the year 2050. So uh, I'm a strong, strong believer in the peace movement.
1: Well, as the great philosopher William Patrick Corgan Jr. once observed, uh, these times too shall pass, and the U.S. Empire too will one day pass. But what will be on the other side of that? What will replace it? And that is the question that, as as I think this conversation has demonstrated, is not going to simply be about geopolitical calculations. It's going to be about the, the people who are on the other side of that collapse. What What do we do as humanity to fill that void of power? And it strikes me that the logic of empire is the logic of cool rationality and calculation of material benefit of this or that maneuver, and it appeals to people on that level. We Oh, don't worry, if you're part of the empire or if we, we take you under our wing, we will we will make sure you have riches and material benefits. But that's why I think it is so important for us to be able to tap into the greater human potential that sees beyond simply the material comforts and and wealth and riches, and starts to appreciate what something beyond that. And for the religious, it may be prayer. For the non-religious, it may just be mindfulness or meditation, as you point out. But at some point, we need to connect with something that is beyond just the logic of empire. And it's extremely fitting that you bring up the the concept of, say, slavery, perfectly, totally accepted by pretty much everyone a couple of hundred years ago. How could you possibly be against slavery? And yet now, obviously, it is. Well, still unfortunately practiced, but certainly almost universally condemned. And on that note, um, you had a quote in here from uh, abolitionist Ezra Haywood writing in the 1860s that I thought was extremely appropriate. I I will probably make well a good use of this quote. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. He wrote, war is wrong, wrong yesterday, wrong today, wrong forever. Self-defense is right, but how much of yourself will you save? The self is composed of soul and body. To save your life by sin, you lose your soul. To lose your life for truth, you save your soul. I go for the soul. What a beautiful quote. And I think something that probably puts a nice bow on this conversation. Unless, Dr. Ganser, is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you'd like to address to the audience?
0: No, no, it's a wonderful quote. I mean, um, that's that's really how I see it. You know, I, I, I fully go with that quote. I think we have a soul and the soul lives on when the body dies. And uh, the soul tells us that we, we shouldn't kill the others. We know. We know. It's not that the soul sometimes say says, well, you can kill 10 if you get 20 million. That'd be a good idea. No, don't kill anybody. The soul knows that and you know you, you said you said maybe one one thing i might add you said people who think you know we we need to get richer and we have need more wealth it's maybe not a coincidence that i'm that i'm based in switzerland i know what what, what richness is nice house nice car everything i see it in switzerland but i tell you that we have we have people who are rich commit suicide who are in depressions? Who are in burnouts? So it's not on the material level. We will not. We will not. Uh, we will. We will not be successful. It really has to be on another level, on the level of soul, meditation. Uh, this level. That. That. That's. That's where we can. That's where we can make progress. Not by, by buying more material goods. That's not. That's not going to solve the problem. We tried that.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's probably a deeper conversation than people might have expected today, but I uh, I hope they appreciate it. And I hope that this at least drives people towards the books, which I will commend once again to everyone's attention. I think they would be extremely valuable in, if you're interested in the corporate Report material, you will be interested in both of these books. So I will, of course, again, put the links in the show notes. And uh, Dr. Ganser, thank you very much for your time today. I hope that we can talk again in the future. And uh, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very much for digging deep.